We're in a new series. We're, we're going through the Ten Commandments. So I thought what we'd do is just start with a pop quiz, and I'm just going to eeny, meeny, miny, pick somebody, and you can come up and uh, see if you can quote them all. Let's see. Just kidding. <laughs> I wouldn't do that to you. Yeah, I warned you last week, right? So if you miss church, that's why you shouldn't miss church. Uh, no. Hey, but the funny thing, uh, as we talk about this, you know, we're in this series, it's called Decalogue, which is another word for the Ten Commandments. And if you just asked most people on the street, like, you know, the man on the street kind of interview, stick a mic in somebody's face and ask them to name off the Ten Commandments. I've watched some of these uh, videos on YouTube in different places. Most people can only name, you know, three, four, some that do really good, maybe make it up to five. And it's interesting because it's always... It's almost always the ones that we think about first and the ones that the man on the street can name are like, you know, don't kill, don't steal, don't commit adultery. And after that, it starts getting a little fuzzy. Like in, normally you're like, oh yeah, I hate your thumb. Oh, don't say the Lord's name in vain. And that means a lot more. We're going to talk about that uh, next week. But most people start there. With like, these are, the, these are the things you need to do, and, and, and that's about all they can remember of it. And most people would admit they're very important to live by, even though they can't remember what they are. And most people also say that they're, they're kind of tied into how we relate to God, or, or really like if God, um, many people think that if I do good enough on keeping these things and, you know, some of the other things in the Bible, the golden rule, that somehow I can just tip the scale in my favor when it comes to a relationship with God, and somehow God will, um, you know, want to initiate a relationship, want to have a relationship with me, or at least let me into heaven, um, because, you know, somehow by being good, I've put him in my debt, and I've sort of tipped the scales in my favor, but it's hard to know really how well I'm doing, and so many people, if you ask them, you know, about heaven, it's like, I, I hope so, I think so, you know, kind of as they do any inventory in their life, but the idea is somehow that we get to be okay with God, God wants to have a relationship with us by getting better, by keeping rules, especially the top 10 rules, not that we remember them anyway, but... That's, how, that's, the, that's the thought, right? And what we saw last week, and this is what we saw in the series we started, and if you're just joining us, uh, we are in the middle of going through the book of Exodus, and uh, we've been in it most of the year. We're going to be in it a good share of the fall and hopefully finish up in one year. Luke took us like two whole years, but I think we're going to get Exodus done uh, within this year and maybe even get to do some other stuff. So uh, anyway, but it's been a really cool journey, and so here we are. We're in Exodus chapter 20. And what we saw last week is actually the opposite of that line of thinking that somehow you have to like tip the scales in your favor or somehow for God to want to be in relationship with you, you have to earn it. And what we saw actually was completely different and actually I think really freeing. And so if you have your Bibles, you want to turn on over to Exodus chapter 20. We're going to pick up um, and just recap real quick what we saw last week and then dive into the first two commandments here today. So Exodus chapter 20, verse 1, starts out like this. And God spoke all these words. I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. Now, you got to remember this, that this was important. This was what we talked about last week when it comes to the way most people think about commandments and law as sort of this prerequisite 
to relationship with God. The fact is, we're only three, we're three months at this point after God has already delivered them from Egypt. And the point we made last week is he says, I am your God. Like, I haven't told you the family rules yet, but I am your God. You're my people. And God had already saved them. He'd already delivered them. He'd already invited them into relationship with him. In fact, three months ago, the very first kind of corporate command God gives to the nation of Israel is, I want you uh, to take a lamb. I want you to have a barbecue. And then he initiates the first Passover, which will be a festival they'll celebrate every year. And I want you to take this lamb and eat it together with your family. But when you do that, it's going to be kind of a little bit strange. I want, to do, I want you to do something a little bit odd. And it's going to be an evidence of the fact that you trust me. And I want you to take and paint some of the blood of that lamb on both sides of your doorpost and across the top of your doorpost. And then you're to go under that, pass under that. And through this symbol of your trust, this will be just a symbol that you trust me and you will be spared. You will be saved. You will be delivered from the 10th and final plague. And it's this amazing thing, the first four, uh, Passover, which foreshadows the death of Jesus 1,400 years later as the perfect and ultimate Passover lamb. The one whose blood we, and through trusting in what he did, we receive forgiveness of sins. That Jesus accomplished the work for us. That's the gospel, right? And last week what we saw is that all along, even all the way back here, it wasn't a matter of somehow tipping the scales enough in your favor that now God wants to have a relationship with me. All along, God moves first to invite us into relationship, to deliver, to save, to redeem. And then the way we live out of that should be out of gratitude. And so what we left you with last week was this, that it's always been about responding to God with trust and loyal love. That's what we always said. In fact, last week we saw family comes first. He invites you first to be part of the family. And then out of gratitude, you respond. You trust him. You respond to him initiating a relationship. Not somehow you got your act together good enough. And now it's no. He wants to deliver you. He wants to rescue you. He's inviting you into relationship no matter where you are today. And as you come into relationship, yes, it's going to transform your life. And out of gratitude, you live your life with loyal love for him. Isn't that good news? And that's what it's been about all along in Scripture. Now, today we get to the rules, the family rules. So as he takes this slave nation, he's going to initiate a whole structure of society. They don't know how to structure society. They've been in slavery for generations, as long as they can remember. Great, great granddaddy, right? As long as they can remember, all they know is you do what you're told by this other nation. Maybe they adopt some of the practices of Egypt, but basically they have no structure and no society, and God's going to say, I'm going to give you the rules and first how to relate to me and then how to relate to other people and some of them on how to just structure a society in this ancient time in, in history and and I'm going to give you the law here, and it's going to be so that you as a nation will thrive, so that people from the outside will look at you and, um, and go, we want to be like them. Who's their God? Look at this people. They're blessed. Look at the way they relate to each other. Look at how they do things so differently, and yet God has blessed them so much. We want to serve that God. 
See, that's the purpose of the nation, to be a nation, a kingdom of priests. And so God is getting ready to give them his law. And it starts like this in Exodus 20, verse 3. And this is the first of the Ten Commandments. You shall have no other gods before me. Or literally, no other gods in addition to me. No other gods beyond me or beside me. And the first commandment, God really says to his people, hey, I want to be your one and only. I, I, I am your one God. I am the one true God. And you'll learn that more as we go through history. But I want to be your one and only God. And the big word for that, if you want the big theological word that I'm sure you're familiar with, is monotheism, right? Monotheism. There's currently three main and major monotheistic faiths in the world. The Christian faith, Judaism, where where it all began, right? As God talks to his people right, right here, and as God develops this. And then, of course, Islam as well. Monotheism, but here's the thing you have to understand about this, is historically, 3,500 years ago, historically, it is so unlikely that a nation would emerge in this ancient time in history and say there was just one God, unless that God actually showed up and spoke to them and showed up and delivered them and rescued them. See, because out of all the cultures in the world, in fact, out of the Egyptian culture that they just came out of, they had lots of gods, right? Every one of the plagues was a judgment against one of the gods, was the one true God showing, hey, I am way more powerful than any of these supposed gods of Egypt, the Nile, all these different things, right? I I am the one who, who is in control. I am the God above all other gods that aren't really gods, right? But every culture in the world at this time of history had multiple gods. In fact, here's why this is so unlikely that this whole concept of monotheism, the whole concept would even emerge. It would be a couple thousand years after this that any other culture other than Israel would have this idea of monotheism of one true God. In fact, 1,500 years after this, when Paul shows up in in ancient Greece, he's looking around everywhere, Acts chapter 17. He's looking around and he's going, man, I see you're very religious. Look at all these altars to all these gods. And he finds the one, the, the unknown God, they had one. And he zeroes in on that and says, let me tell you about this God because this God, the one that you don't know about yet, is the God of all gods. He is the one true God. But at this point in history, um, people had so many different deities and they'd go to one for, you know, if you had a health problem, you would sacrifice to this God. If you had a business problem or something with your finance, you would come to some other idol and you would try to appease that idol, right? If you had crops that were failing, you would come and you would try to appease this God. And oftentimes, to the extent and to the level that they would um, basically go into starvation sometimes because you never quite knew where you stood with the gods. And obviously, the more you give them or the more you appease them, the better off you are. And this was the way that people related to gods. And in the midst of this culture, the one true God breaks in to his people and says, not with us, not with you. I am the one true God, which you will learn as we go forward. You've already seen I am the most powerful. I've defeated all the gods of of Egypt. But I want to be your one and only 
God. I want to be the one you come to, the one you trust, the one you rely on. When you have an issue, I want to be the one you pray to. I, I want to be, when you're, when you're cross you, you pray to me. I am the only God. I want to be your only God. See, and this isn't just the first of the Ten Commandments. This is such a powerful and important principle because it's the, it's the launching point for how we live out our relationship with our Heavenly Father. This is where it starts. It's always been about responding to God in trust, right? Trusting Him, trusting He is who He says He is, and then responding out of loyal love. And God says, hey, there are no other gods. I don't want you to worship or bow down to other gods. In other words, I want to be the sinner. I want to be the center. I want to hold the center place in your heart. I want to be your one and only. A little later on, he'll say this. He'll say, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, right? Who else? Who echoed that? You're in church. It's an easy answer. Thank you. Front row. <laughs> Jesus echoes that, right? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. That encompasses the whole of the law and prophets. That's what this whole thing is about. And God starts out by saying, I want to be your only God. Love me with all your heart. I want to be the center that your life revolves around. Now, in verse 4, he goes on to the second commandment. And it might sound a little bit like God is repeating himself here. But he actually goes on to introduce another idea that was so counterintuitive to his people at this time in history. So he says, you shall have no other gods before me. And then in verse four, he says, you shall not make for yourself an image or an idol in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. I don't want you to make an image of anything that you bow down to, that you worship. None of that. And this actually... Um, what it does mean, uh, so he's saying, yes, don't make images or idols of other gods and bow down and worship them. That is true. But it's deeper than that. It's more than just saying, hey, don't go and adopt the, the images or the idols of, you know, the cultures around. You don't do that. That's idolatry. But I've already said, don't have any other gods before me or beyond me or beside me, right? He says, I don't want you to make an image of anything that's supposed to represent me. This is the deeper meaning here. So yes, it's other gods and idols of other gods and images of other gods, but he's saying, I don't want you to make an image of anything that's supposed to represent me because I am the invisible God. I am the true God. And you have to understand, this was a radical idea in the time. See, every god in the time had an image like we said, for, for a couple thousand years after this, 1,500 years after this, Titus, as he came into the temple, he was excited to see the God that inspired the Jews to fight so heartily, and, and he walks into the Holy of Holies, and there's nothing there. And he's like, well, that's lame. No, it's, it's not, and because God commanded them, you don't make an image of me. And this is so strange for the people. I mean, a couple hundred years ago, if you remember, I mean, some of the images were big. You know, you see 
idols and, and things in ancient history. Um, some of them were actually gods, like little you know, statues you could sort of tuck in your shirt pocket and take with you and put up on the shelf. And, and you'd sort of worship them and then you'd you know, put them away and that kind of thing. In fact, Rachel, one of the, uh, you know, Jacob's wife, uh, their forefather Jacob, a couple hundred years before this, when, when they sneak off and leave her father, um, Jacob's father-in-law, she steals the family gods. And she, like, takes them with her. <laughs> Apparently they were pretty small, these, these ones, right? And so that's just the way they thought. This was the culture. Every god had an image. Every god had a, an idol that represented it, that they would bow down to, that you would worship in fact, um, if you know your Bible, uh, just a couple chapters away from this, while Moses is up on the mountain for 40 days getting the law of God, what are the people down below doing? Making an image, an idol, right? The golden calf story. And so this is a revolutionary thought in the culture at this time in history. It will be revolutionary for a couple thousand years. And God says, I don't want you to make an image. Don't bow down to any other image, but even of me, I don't want you to create an image that's supposed to represent me that's going to become an object of worship. It'll be a stumbling block to you. Don't create an image of me for two reasons. The first one is this. It's not possible to create an image that represents who I am, God would say. In fact, a while later through the prophet Isaiah, God reminds his people of this truth. He says this, and it's not on the screen, but he says this in Isaiah 40. Lift up your eyes on high and see who has created these stars. The one who leads forth their host by number. He calls them all by name because of the greatness of his might and the strength of his power. Not one of them is missing. In other words, look at all these stars. Look at the universe. The God we worship created all of this, can you fathom a God like that? And now, through science, we realize we can't fathom how big the universe is, you know? I can't remember the, the you know, it's like, you know, million, billion, trillion, quadrillion, and it just goes on, right? Gajillion, I think. You know, it's like, the universe is so massive. And, the, and those numbers are expressed in light years of travel, we can't even comprehend how big this universe is that God created. He created it all. He says, I am, the tr I am the creator of all this. And you think you can carve a little image? You think you can make something that's supposed to represent me? I don't think so, buddy. In fact, God says this later in Isaiah. He says, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. Where is the house you'll build for me? Where will my resting place be? Just picture that. Heaven, earth, kicking up his feet. Yeah, nice little temple there. Appreciate the effort. But come on, let's be serious when it comes to approaching God and trying to understand God. He is beyond our comprehension, right? When Isaiah, God gives Isaiah a vision of, of him and his glory, there's all these crazy spiritual being seraphims and, uh, and they're around the throne of God just crying out like we sang in that song. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Holy, nothing is like you. You're set apart. You are beyond everything. The earth is filled with his glory. 
And it affected Isaiah in such a big way, this vision that he falls down like a dead man and says, woe am I, woe am I. And you think you can carve a little image? You think you can make an image that represents the unseen God? No, no. So he says, first, you can't. Second, second, here's the thing. If you do, if you try to make an image of me, if you try to create something of me, here, here's a temptation. This is a temptation we face and a temptation that they faced if, is this. You will always be tempted to shrink God down in your mind to something you can control, to something you can manage, to, some, to someone you can set the terms of relating to. If you create an image of me, hey, you get to decide when, when you want to come into my presence and go out, right? In other words, hey, yeah, you're my little, I've got this little figurine here, and you know, I'll tuck you in my shirt pocket for good luck when I want to go to this business deal, and that went great. Good, thanks, God. I'm going to come just put you back on the shelf because I have somewhere else I'm going to go, and I don't really want you there with me. I can come into your presence. I can go out of your presence. I set the terms of how I relate to you. And when it's convenient, when I need something, let's, let's talk. But when I got, you know, huh, spring break's coming up, you know, I don't really want you on that trip. I'm going to leave you over here. I'm going to set the terms for how we relate. I'm going to set the terms. If you create God, you will shrink him down in your mind to something you can control. Or you'll tend to only make him a facet or a component of your life instead of being the center of your life. That I have my God time over here and, you know, I have my God time and I do the church thing over here, but that's just in, this, in a time and a place and that's sort of a facet of my life. But God, you sort of stay over there for the rest of the time. I'm going to just put you over there and I'm going to go on with my life. It's Friday night. Don't really want to think about you now. I'll be back Sunday, don't worry. You see, this is how, this is the heart behind don't make an image. You think of your relationship with God as, hey, hey, I had my time, I did my thing, I offered my sacrifice, you know, I checked off the box, had had a quiet time even, right? Which is a good thing, don't get me wrong. But it can become just a checklist item in how you relate to God and then you move on with your life instead of making him the center of your life. Like he said, I want to be the center. I want your life to revolve around your relationship with me. God says, I want you to trust me, to pray to me. I want to be your only God, the one you come to. And even though you cannot see me, And you have no image that represents me. I want you to recognize that wherever you go, I'm there. I'm there. My presence is with you. I'm with you. Like the psalmist says, where can I flee from your spirit? I went to the top of the mountain. You were there. I went to the depths. You were there. Went on spring break. Oh, you were there too. We better talk about that one. And the point is, you shrink God down and you're going to turn, try to turn him into something you can control and the relationship you can define and something you can manipulate. But if he's the center of your life and you recognize that you are always in his presence, that he is with you, 
that will affect the way you live your life. That will affect the way you treat others. That will affect the way you relate to others. Won't it? And God speaks, keeps speaking in verse 5. He really wants them to get the heart behind this. And so he adds this warning. He says, I don't want you to make any image, no image. Verse 5, you shall not bow down to them or worship them. For I am the Lord your God. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. I want you to know this about me. I won't be content to have anything put into the place that I'm supposed to occupy in your heart. That's not okay. I want to be the center. And as you look at this in the Hebrew, this is in the terms of like a marriage covenant. It's the language here. In fact, that's the word for, for, for jealousy, is that jealousy that someone would feel towards a relationship, not in an unhealthy sense, but in a healthy sense of, I, don't, I, don't, I want to be your one and only. I want you to be faithful. I want to know that, that I, occupy, I occupy the place in the center of your heart. He says, I'm a jealous guy. I'm jealous for this relationship. And this isn't some kind of insecurity that God has. You realize that when God tells us to worship him and praise him, it's not because he's lacking anything. It's not because he needs anything from you. I mean, he created everything, right? It's, it's not, it's because he loves you and he realizes that he is the center of everything. That he is the creator of everything. And that your life was created. Your life was created to live within the confines of the reality that he is the center. And you were made to worship and glorify him. And guess what? When you align your life with reality, life goes better, right? Anybody ever tried or on accident tried to defy the law of gravity and found out it doesn't go well? Yes, we all have, haven't we, at one time or another? I was up on the monument with a buddy of mine, and he's, he was more athletic, he still is, and uh, we, were in, we were in high school, and we were climbing around way up in the monument, and we come down to this one spot, and there was a cliff. It wasn't real big, but I don't know, 10, 12 feet probably. Maybe it wasn't that high, but in my mind's eye, it seemed that high. And my friend John jumps off this cliff, lands it in this patch of sand, and like, come on! And so I decided, okay, I'll follow you. I jump off and land it wrong and twisted my ankle really, really bad and had to hike out all the way on it. It was painful. And I learned that there is a law called gravity that even a high schooler cannot defy, right? Life goes better when you align your life with reality. And so God, God doesn't say this, I'm jealous, because he's got some sort of insecurity complex. No, it's because he knows that if his people go off and serve other gods, before you know it, things are going to start going very, very poorly for them. Which is exactly what happens when they go after other gods. They will find, he has brought them out of bondage. He wants to keep them out of bondage. And he says, I'm jealous for this relationship because I've set you free and I don't want you to go back and serve other gods that are going to make you go do horrible things like sacrifice your children on idols and go into all these cultic practices and different things. No, 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 no. I'm jealous for this because this is the way I've created you for. I have created you for a relationship with me. 
And you can go against that, but you do it to your own detriment. And now he goes on and gets to what seems like a very harsh or stern warning. He goes on, I'm a jealous God. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sins of the parents to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. We're like, what's up with that? Punishing. And literally, when you, when you dig into the language, it means visiting the sins or taking account of the sins. And often what you see in Scripture is, is that God's punishments were and still are allowing the natural consequence of sin to take effect, right? Let me tell you what this Scripture is not, because people in the church have struggled with this over the years. This is not language about a generational curse. In other words, this is not language that you had, your, your granddad was an awful, horrible man, and, and now that affects your relationship with God. What, if, what is, in fact, just later in the law, God says, hey, kids cannot be punished for the sins of the parents or vice versa. And so it must not mean that. And, and it doesn't mean a generational curse here that somehow because somebody in your family did something that was very anti-God, that now you, that like puts a barrier between your relationship with God and somehow you can't know. Guess what? Your relationship with God is defined with you responding to him in trust and loving him. That's how he says right down there. Showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. So this isn't like somehow there's bondage in that. And if that's the way you think, and it's because of scripture, this scripture, that somehow, you know, you don't think, I will never have a good relationship with God because my grandpa did this, and somehow there's a generational curse. No, that's a wrong way of thinking. The cross sets you free. The gospel sets you free. Trust in Jesus sets you free. God relates to you based on a trusting response to him initiating a relationship with you. Okay? So this isn't what it's talking about here, but what, it, what I believe it really is talking about here is God knows and he wants to warn them of how significant and severe this is. And he says, hey, if you wander away from me, there will be consequences. In fact, he spells that out later on in the, in the law, in the first five books of the Bible. Guess what? If your people abandon me and go into idolatry, I brought you into this land, and I can take you out of it. And that's exactly what happens after Solomon uh, initially sins and leads the nation, and the, two, the, the kingdom of Israel splits about five, four, five hundred years after this as they begin to go after the idols, abandon God, and before you know it, they're hauled off into exile. Ten of the tribes never to return. Two of the tribes in the southern kingdom for 70 years. Sounds like the second, third, and fourth generation, right? Before they're brought back to the land. And there is a truth, and this is just a truth, and it's not fair, but it's true, is that there are consequences for sin. There are consequences for, for not aligning your life with the way of God. And when you live that way, not just you suffers, but your kids and oftentimes grandkids suffer too, right? We've seen that. That there is a consequence. That there, there could be someone who gave your family a bad name because of something they did. Or 
patterns, generational patterns of addiction or different things can be, can be initiated in a family, right? That a family struggles with. We've seen that. It's just the truth. When, you, when, when people abandon God's ways, other people get hurt. I'm sure every one of us knows someone in our life that's an example of that. That we can think of, right? And God says, if you choose not to keep these first two commandments, not to put me in the front and center of your heart and life, not only will your life suffer, but also your, your children, your grandchildren will suffer, right? I was in Hungary when I was a kid um, in 1989. And it, it was the year, uh, it was before the Iron Curtain fell. For those younger in the room, that means it was still under communism. And there was just this sense of oppressiveness everywhere you went. I, I can still remember it, even though I was a kid. I still remember just the feeling of oppression. Because a couple generations before this, the, the leaders had decided that no longer should, are we going to put God as center. Instead of God, the state is going to be God. The state is going to be the one we put our faith and our trust in. And in fact, we're going to outlaw worshiping God. And my parents were doing ministry in this underground church. It was like a bunker under this house. And then it had outgrown that so that like it spilled out. And by this time, you know, because the Iron Curtain was almost ready to fall, it wasn't quite, you know, they could meet a little more freely and they couldn't hide it anymore. They'd blown out all the walls in this house and made this church uh, where this big church was meeting, meeting in, right? But that is the oppressiveness of generations that turn their back on God. And that's what God is talking about here. And we see this illustrated so plainly in the people of Israel a few hundred years later as they go after gods like Molech, right? And their children are sacrificed and ultimately they go into exile. So anytime we fail to place God in the center of our hearts and lives, people suffer and not just us. The impact ripples down to generations. But the good news is God says that showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. Those that respond to me and trust and love. The, the impact your life can have when you respond to God, you have no idea. We have no idea this side of eternity what just saying yes to God, but choosing to align our heart to his purpose, choosing to make him the center of our lives, you have no idea the impact that will have on your kids, your kids' kids, generations to come. It's, it's vital. It's vital. And here's the bottom line. is this, that your life is designed to be lived with God at the center. Your life is designed to be lived with God at the center. And this is so significant. These first two commandments, these, these first few verses of the Ten Commandments are, are so important to us because they lead us to a decision that is actually perhaps, well, I think it's the most important decision you can make after trusting Jesus as your Lord and Savior. And that is to decide to make him the center of your life. 
to decide that, that you are not going to just put him up on a shelf and relate to him in a moment of time here and there and on your terms, but you're going to really say, God, this is about you. I want to submit my life to your purposes. See, and if you just leave the Ten Commandments, or start with the, you know, don't kill, don't steal, all that. Um, obviously, don't do that stuff, right? But if you just start with that, it's just a list of rules. But God starts here, and he says, I want to talk about your heart. I want to talk about me being the center. Because if you don't start there, you are not going to have very good luck when it comes to relating to others. You're just not. You know, for a follower of Jesus, self-centered is not an okay center for your life. And we all know people who that is the center of their life. They make claim to be a Christian, right? But ultimately, it's all about them. They're very self-centered. They're not much fun to be around, are they? Their lives aren't making a great impact for God and his kingdom. And see, if we don't decide on purpose to, to, to allow God to be the center of our lives, something else will become the center on accident, right? It just happens. You'll, you'll find something emerge in your life that becomes more important, that you basically organize your whole life around, right? And sometimes these are hard to recognize because the things at the center aren't often bad things. In fact, most of the time, they're good things. They're good things. And sometimes this is hard to relate to because we don't carve an idol and bow down to it. That would be weird in this culture, right? Like if in front of your business you, you erected a shrine to success and stopped on the way every day and lit some incense in front of it. That would be strange in this culture, wouldn't it? If you carved a statue of your boyfriend or girlfriend and just bowed down to it, it'd be a little strange. If you built an altar in, in the front yard to your family and, you know, you burnt the leftover KFC on it, your neighbors would maybe call the police. Be weird, right? If we were to put up monuments to our sporting hobbies and proudly display them all over our mantles. Oh, wait, we do that one. But here's the thing, at times and places in our lives, we've all allowed something else to become the center point of our life that everything else revolves around. And if that's anything other than God, maybe it's a career, a success, a relationship, a hobby, a sport, a goal, even family. When that becomes the center and the focus of it all, when anything, even good things, become the center of our life that everything else revolves around and it's not about God and his kingdom and his purposes and worshiping him, our life just quickly spins out of control. And some of you have experienced that because we're not designed to have anything in the center of our life except our Heavenly Father. That's the way he's created it. Because he knows he created you. He knows what is best for your joy, what is best for your fulfillment. And so you really need to today answer the question, is God the center of your heart and life? Or is he just an afterthought? And this is a hard one because I think a lot of times, really God can just kind of become an afterthought. It's pretty easy sometimes to go through a day, a week, 
or even a season of a month, or for some, maybe you're just coming back to church, connecting with God, church in the Bible, maybe a, a season, a decade, where God was just kind of an afterthought in your life. Your life was centered firmly around yourself or around a relationship or around your success or around a sport or a hobby. All good things, nothing wrong with those things. In fact, God knows we need those things, but they're not designed to be at the center. Is God the center of your life or is he just an afterthought? Some good indicators are how how are you spending your time? How are you spending your time? How are you spending your money? Asking yourself, does God hold the primary place in my affections? Do I love and have affection for him in my heart? Or is he just honestly the last thing on my mind? Or some, you're really disciplined and you know you get up and you, you, you do a quiet time and you check off a box. And, it's, and that's a good thing. Don't hear me wrong. That's a wonderful thing. But here's what that thing should be doing. If it's just to check off the box, it's a chance that something else is the center of your life and this is just a box you're checking off. That basically you're saying, God, you're over here. You're my, in my shirt pocket. I'm going to put you on this shelf and I'm going to come in and spend a few minutes with you over here. And then I'm on to, the, on to the races the rest of the day and not giving you a second thought. What this is supposed to do, and this is a good thing, and disciplines, spiritual disciplines are good, but what they're supposed to do is recenter your heart and life. It's supposed to be like starting the day and saying, God, I'm going to spend time with you. I'm going to pray and I'm going to re-remind myself and ask you and recenter that you are the center of my life. That I want the whole thing to revolve around you. Jesus said, Jesus said this. He said, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. In other words, put, put that at the center of your life. Make sure your life revolves around that. And he says, and all the other stuff will be added to you. All the stuff you're worried about. God knows you need to, you know, get your kids into, into school um, maybe some other year. Just kidding. God knows your kids need a good education, right? God knows, you know, there's these things. God knows you enjoy getting out and fishing and doing stuff. And, and, and that's good and that replenishes. God knows that. He knows that, you know, you need to build relationships. And, and he, he wants you to work hard. All those things. But none of those things was designed to be the center. Seek first his kingdom and all those other things will be added. In other words, you get your cake, the thing that really satisfies, and you get to eat it too, right? You align your life with his purposes. And the other things, instead of your life being re-centered around something that isn't, that was never meant to be the center of your life, It'll be centered on the one true thing, and then everything else will fall in line and in place with that. Seek first his kingdom. Is God at the center of your life, or is he just an afterthought? Because your life is designed to be lived with God at the center. So I just want to encourage you. I think this way of thinking, many, many times we think of God as like, is God your top priority? And, and that's a hard one for us, isn't it? And the reason is because life is so demanding. 
life has so many things pulling us in different directions. And there's that really cool illustration where you have like sand and gravel and big rocks and you put the big rocks in first and then everything else fits in. But if you start with the sand and the gravel, the little things, anybody seen that illustration? And oftentimes the way we think about that in our mind is, okay, I'm going to put my time with God first. And that's a good thing to do, right? But I think a more helpful framework of thinking about a relationship with God and how it actually um, works itself out is thinking more of like a, a hub and a wheel. And God is at the center and everything else revolves around that. That you get up and say, God, it's about you. It's about your kingdom. It's about your purposes for me. God, who do you want me to talk to today? What do you want me to do? I've got 18 million different things pulling at me. But in the midst of all that, I want to remind myself that it's really all about you, about seeking your kingdom, about living for you. So Holy Spirit, show me who you want me to pause for today and pray for. Show me the conversations you want me to have. Remind me that in the midst of all this craziness of life, if I replace the center and suddenly it becomes about me or my success, I lost it. It's about you. And all these other things revolves and rotates around you. And I think if you begin to do that, you will find a freedom in life and a peace in life that comes from having your life centered on the right thing. Would you stand? And as we close, I just want to give you a moment. I'm just going to be silent for a moment. And I want to give you a moment just to, for those in the room, and I'm, I'm just guessing most of you are followers of Jesus already. If you're joining us online, you're, many of you are. And if that's you, I just want to give you a moment just to, in your heart and mind, say, God, I realize in this area of my life I've gotten off track. I've allowed myself, I've allowed something else to take the place of the center which is, I think, why I'm experiencing so much stress and anxiety in my life right now. I want to let that go, and I want to refresh and remind myself that you are the center in my heart, in my life. Would you just pray for a moment, have a conversation with him, and then I'll close us? Father, I want to say thank you for my friends. Lord, if there's any in the room or online that have not responded to you in trust, I pray right now they would, they would pray and say, Jesus, I trust in what you did for me when you died and rose again. I want to live my life for you. Lord, for all my other friends, I pray that you would just give them a, a strong sense this week of realigning and recentering their life on you and your kingdom and your purposes, that you would be primary in their heart and in their minds. And they would find peace this week, Lord, in the midst of everything else. Thank you, Lord. We love you. We worship you. In Jesus' name, amen.